Well, good morning. I'm excited because we're starting a new study this morning, huh? We're going to be digging into the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Uh, but before we begin to really begin to look at, at what it is that we're going to be studying for the next weeks and months, um, I want us to pause, step back, and consider the context of what it is we're about to read. You got to understand this. It doesn't matter what we're talking about. If you, you read anything without considering its context, you are going to misunderstand it. Uh, it's just this simple. Context is like punctuation. It matters. Uh, there is a huge difference between let's eat, grandma, and let's eat grandma, <laughs> especially if you're grandma, right? Uh, there's a difference between $25 bills and $25 bills. And there's a difference between, I'm sorry, I love you. And I'm sorry, I love you. <laughs> and finally, there is an enormous difference between a man eating chicken and a man eating chicken. <laughs> so with that in mind, we need to pay attention to context. So what is the context of 1 Samuel? Well, 1 Samuel is one of the historical books of the Old Testament. Now, I said historical, not hysterical, okay? It's one of the historical books of the Old Testament, along with Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. They're the books that, that record Israel's history as they conquer and then lose and then reclaim the land that God promised to give to them. First Samuel's part in that history is the transition from the time of the judges when the 12 tribes of Israel uh, were living in the promised land as 12 separate tribes and not under a king. And that transition into the time period where it was the era of the kings where they lived in the land as a nation uh, beginning under the majestic rule of King David, Saul before him, but eventually David. You know, the, the singular theme that we see repeated all through these uh, books of the history of Israel, uh, most notably in the book of Judges, is the contrast uh, between, on one hand, mankind's sinfulness and unfaithfulness to God, uh, but on the other hand, God's holiness and absolute faithfulness to man. Uh, this all-too-familiar pattern, all-too-familiar not only in our reading of the books, but in our experience of life, uh, this all-too-familiar pattern of of God's people doing what they should not do, doing evil. And so God allowing uh, things to come to bear upon them. In the case of Israel, invaders coming in and oppressing them, which causes the people to cry out to God to rescue them. And then God answers them by sending someone to lead them back to his ways and lead them back into freedom. But what do they do? And what do we often do once we find freedom from that oppression? We turn back to doing evil again, starting the cycle all over again. 
you know, to to be rightly understood, the the futility of that cycle of sin, oppression, repentance, and peace, and, and First Samuel's part in it as well, it, it almost be understood within an even larger context, the context of God's plan of redemption. No matter what it is that we're reading in Scripture, or really, no matter what it is we're trying to understand in life, our largest context always begins with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where we read that God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we read there in Genesis 1 that God created us and that he created man in his own image. Uh, what we've got to keep in mind is that uh, all that we experience in this life and all that we experience in this world in which we live, it all comes from the fact that God created. He created this world and he created humanity. He made Adam and Eve and he made them uh, so that they might have relationship with him. That's the point. That's the purpose behind what God did. He made us so that we might live in relationship with him. But what happened? Well, very early on, Adam and Eve, the first two people, blew it all apart. They, they chose sin rather than relationship with God. They broke their relationship with God. And from that moment on, it became the story of God's plan of redemption. That story begins with God setting aside a people, a people to be his own, a people through which he would himself eventually come as our Savior, our Messiah, our Redeemer. God called Abraham first, remember that? called him to be God's man amidst a world that was in rebellion against God. Eventually, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, God renamed him Israel, and he became, and his sons became the family that, that became God's people amongst the nations of the world that were in rebellion against God. And then Moses brought God's people out of slavery in Egypt. And, and then Joshua brings them into the land. And that's where we pick up our part of the story there at the beginning of 1 Samuel as the tribes are, are living somewhat connected to each other there within the land that God gave them. But even at that point, they're living that cycle of failure that we talked about. They're failing to live out their calling as God's people. Why? Because they need God's redemption. They need a savior. What's wonderful is that even in the midst of their failure, though, despite their brokenness, 1 Samuel shows us those who choose to submit themselves to God and because of that, become a part of his plan of redemption. So with all that context in mind, uh, grab your Bible, open to 1 Samuel, and we're going to take a look at the first 18 verses of chapter 1 this morning. So will you do that? Turn to 1 Samuel and then stand. I will read our passage, and I encourage you to follow along in your own Bible. 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. 
There was a man from Ramathaim Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, the first named Hannah, the second Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of Armies at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. Whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to each of her sons and daughters, but he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Her rival would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Year after year, when she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way. Hannah would weep and would not eat. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband Elkanah would ask. Why don't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than 10 sons? On one occasion, Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. The priest Eli was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. While she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her mouth. Hannah was praying silently and though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. Eli thought she was drunk. He said to her, how long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. No, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. Eli responded, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant the request you've made of him. May your servant find favor with you, she replied. Then Hannah went on her way She ate and no longer looked despondent. Let's pray. Father, we we ask, Lord, that this morning you would help us to, to understand what it is that your word is speaking to us. And God, more than that, we ask that you would you would soften and prepare our hearts so that we might respond to you, that we might be willing to submit ourselves to you, to trust ourselves in your loving care. God, we pray that in the midst of our time and as we understand what it is that your word says, that we would respond inviting you to bring transformation into our lives. Work that in us, Lord. Work in this time. We give it to you and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So 1 Samuel recounts the transformation of the 12 tribes of Israel into the nation of Israel. 
And it all begins with a single, seemingly inconsequential family. There in verse 1, we, we read that there was a man from Ramathame Zotham, oh, a small village, a place, honestly, they don't really even know exactly where it was at this point. It was somewhere in the hill country of Ephraim, the text tells us. This man's name was Elkanah. It tells us who his father, grandfather, great-grandfather and such were, and that he lived amongst the people of Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim. Elkanah wasn't a famous man. We know very little about him. He wasn't a great leader. He was just an otherwise unknown Levite. In fact, the only reason we know that he was a Levite and not part of the tribe of Ephraim is that he appears in 1 Chronicles 6 in the genealogy listing the Levites. If you remember, the Levites didn't have a land allotment of their own, and so they lived amongst the other tribes. And so here, Elkanah, living as a Levite, was there amidst the tribe of Ephraim. And Elkanah had two wives, the first named Hannah and the second, Penina, we read in verse 2. Penina had children, but Hannah, Hannah did not. Yeah. Polygamous marriages were not part of God's plan. Let, let's understand that from the outset. Uh, we talked about this last week, didn't we? And remember we talked about how in Mark chapter 10, Jesus referencing, really quoting Genesis chapter 2, he says this, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man, okay, so that's one man, a single man, will leave his father and mother and the two. Now, if there was one man already and now there, there, there's two people, one of them is a woman, that means there is only one other woman, okay? So the math is not difficult. So it's one man and one woman and the two will become one flesh and so they are no longer two but one. And so the... The clear teaching of scripture here is that one man and one woman for life are to come together. And yet we find not just here in 1 Samuel, but wherever we look, we find that in every conceivable way, humanity has failed to follow this very simple formula. In that day, and likely in Elkanah's case, if a a man marries a woman and she is unable to have children, it would be common for that man to then take a second wife whom he hoped would produce children for him who would become workers in the field or amongst the flocks. Now, understand, this was common, but it wasn't right. It wasn't God's plan. God's plan was for one man and for one woman. And as we'll see, every place that Scripture describes this taking place, it never works out well. Now, Elkanah is wrong in what he has done. He's wrong to have done this. And yet, we look at Elkanah, and he seems to be a, a decent guy. 
And it seems that he, he's a man who wants to honor God. He wants to worship God. After all, look at what we read in verse 3. This man would go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice the Lord of armies at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. We look at this and we see this contradiction. And, and you know, here's this guy. He, 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 he seems to really want to honor God and to, and to worship God. And after all, he's a priest. And yet he does this thing that is just so contradictory to what God has laid out. And you look at it and you think, how does this happen? How do you get this kind of hypocrisy uh, within a life? I think the the last part of verse 3 really lays out for us where that probably came from. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas were the Lord's priests there at Shiloh. And so here we have these men who we will see in later chapters are just wickedly hypocritical. And, and you know, we know how this works. As goes the leadership, so goes the people. And so it becomes no surprise that Elkanah even though he was a priest and even though he very well should have known what God's plan for marriage was, that he could find himself in this place where he is compromised, confronted with what God's word has said, he has chosen hypocrisy instead of submission. And you know, that makes life messy. It makes it messier than it needs to be. Isn't that true? Well, we don't know this just from reading the Old Testament. We know this from practice, don't we? We we read the word, we hear God's word taught, and we know very clearly what God is telling us. We, We see the very clear command of God. And yet, how often do we settle for hypocrisy rather than submitting ourselves to the Lord? You know, what we really need is to submit ourselves to the Lord and and to allow him to work in us. It isn't as simple as just choosing to obey. Because what happens when we choose to obey? We fail, right? We fail again and again. It's got to be coming to this place of, of, of choosing to submit ourselves to the Lord to allow him to change us and to allow us to experience transformation. And so we see Elkanah having chosen hypocrisy instead of choosing to submit himself to the Lord into that process of transformation. Well, verse 4 tells us whenever Elkanah offered sacrifice, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to each of her sons and daughters, but he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Now, understand this. When you brought a fellowship or a free will offering to the Lord, uh, both the worshiper and the priest uh, would take home a portion of the sacrifice. And so part of the celebration of worshiping God would include sharing a great dinner together. And so here, Elkanah, he, he is willingly worshiping the Lord and he brings home the, uh, the feast and And it's like he's trying to make things better for Hannah. He knows that that what he has done has been hurtful to her. And so 
because he loves her, he gives her extra food. But that doesn't really fix things, does it? It doesn't really help. It only exacerbates the, the already difficult dynamics of having this plural marriage. It increases the rivalry between the wives. Uh, look at Penina's response at verse 6. Her rival would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Year after year, when she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way, and Hannah would weep and not eat. <laughs> so here, when they go up to Shiloh, Elkanah gives Hannah twice as much food, uh, which just serves to remind Penina that Elkanah loves Hannah, not her. That really, she's just there to produce babies. And so in her bitterness, she strikes out against Hannah taunting her severely year after year. And Hannah, Hannah has this double portion of food, but she's eating nothing. She doesn't want food. Food doesn't help her situation. What she wants is to be able to give Elkanah a child. Elkanah's trying to make things better, but he can't. He can't fix this. Look at his best efforts. He's just digging a hole. Verse 8, he begins to pepper her with questions, trying to get information. I'll fix this problem, he thinks. Hannah, why are you crying? Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than 10 sons? He, you know, it's always a good thing to know when to shut up. <laughs> Elkanah does not know when to shut up. He would have been better off to just say nothing. Yeah. He had already very clearly communicated to Hannah that because she could not produce children for him that she was not enough. That's why Penina was there. Hannah wasn't better to him than ten sons. Elkanah can't be the solution for Hannah. Yeah, that's a good thing as a spouse to realize. Uh, I can't be the solution for my wife. My wife can't be the solution for me. We've got to be looking to the Lord. It's the Lord that's going to meet our needs and who's going to, uh, to rescue us out of the predicaments into which we land ourselves. And that's where Hannah looks. Look at verse 9. On one occasion, Hannah got up after they had ate and drank at Shiloh. The priest Eli was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the temple and deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord. She wept with many tears, making a vow. She pleaded, Lord of armies, if if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me, and give your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of my life, and his hair will never be cut. 
So Hannah goes there to the place of worship, to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, that place where God would manifest his presence, that place where the sacrifices would be offered. She goes there and she cries out to God and she's weeping. She turns to the, to the only one who can truly help her. As you're processing what it is that takes place there between Hannah and the Lord, I want you to, to really think this through before you conclude that, that, that what has happened is that Hannah has made a bargain with God to get that thing that she so desperately wants. I don't think that's what takes place here at all. Uh, honestly, according to what she asks, Hannah in the end would not get the very thing that she wanted. What Hannah wanted more than anything was to give Elkanah a son. But what Hannah does is come to the Lord and promise to give the very thing that she wants so desperately, not to Elkanah, but to the Lord himself. She she says that if, if the Lord allows her to bear a son, that she will give that son to the Lord. That's the whole thing with not cutting his hair. It was what they would call a Nazarite vow that, that from his birth through the whole of his life, he would be someone who would be given over completely to the Lord. He would be owned by the Lord and not by Hannah, not by Elkanah. What happens here isn't that Hannah strikes a bargain with God, but Hannah comes to God and completely surrenders that thing which she desires more than anything and gives it over to God. Something interesting happens. Something interesting happens whenever we see someone who completely surrenders themselves and their greatest desires to the Lord. They become a part of God's story of redemption. And that's what happens here uh, with Hannah. This barren wife of an unknown priest, when she surrenders herself and her desires completely to the Lord, she is given a key part of God's plan of redemption of the world. Hannah will give birth to the one who would anoint as king over Israel, David, the one who would be the ancestor of the Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. Now, you and I might look at that and think that that's a, a rather small part to play. But I don't think there are any small parts in God's story of redemption. And I don't think that Hannah would think that it was a small part at all. For her, it was her validation and her value. It was her part in the story. You know, as we read scripture, one of the things that we have to constantly keep in mind, because the way that we're wired, as we read, we are always, we have our feelers out, thinking that the story is always about us. But it isn't. 
as we read through scripture, we think that it might be a story about Adam and Eve or a story about Abraham or Noah or Hannah. But what we have to keep in mind is that the story is God's story. It's a story about him. It's a story about the God who created so that we might be in relationship with him. It's a story about the God who we rebelled against, that we turned away from and fell into sin. It's a story about the God who loved us so much that he was willing to put on human flesh and come and pay the penalty for our sin. Uh, the God who set in motion centuries before the coming of the Messiah, his plan of redemption. That will be a good thing for us to keep in mind as we read about Samuel and Saul and David and the others. If we want to understand what we read correctly, we need to remember that our focus isn't upon the men. They're not the heroes of the story. Oh, they're the broken recipients of the action of the hero. And that hero, it's God himself. And the best thing that we can draw out of the things that we read, these historical accounts of the transition from the tribes to the kings of Israel, we'll be learning more about who God is as he reveals himself through the process and seeing what it is that he is doing to move forward his plan of redemption that we might be redeemed out of our sin. Keeping that in mind, look at verse 12 and on. Hannah continues praying in the Lord's presence. And Eli watches her. Hannah's praying silently. Her lips are moving. Her voice can't be heard. And so Eli, Eli thought she was drunk and begins to chastise her for coming to the Lord's tent and being drunk. But she denies it. She says, no, 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 you misunderstand. I'm not drunk. I'm brokenhearted. I haven't had any, anything to drink. But I'm pouring out my heart to the Lord, she says. I'm not a wicked woman but I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and my resentment. It would be really easy to read this, to, to pick out our heroine and our villain. Eli, the villain. Eli, the cynical old priest, sees evil under every rock, he, you know, looking at everyone with a downward glance. Oh, Eli, who was very used to seeing the worst in people because he spent a lot of time with his sons and they really were the worst of people. He wrongly assumes that our heroine Hannah is a babbling drunk. Oh, but she sets him straight. She isn't drunk. She's just brokenhearted. And yet, you know, I think we would be seeing Hannah wrong if we saw her as the heroine. Hannah herself admits to the fact that her heart is full of not only anguish, but what? Resentment. Resentment. I don't know if you know this or not, but that's a bad thing to fill your heart with. 
Oh, we tend to that, don't we? Disappointment can so easily lead to resentment. We experience pain or disappointment or loss. We begin to be angry with others, those who we think have caused our hurt, or maybe with God himself. We resent that God has allowed this. Hannah doesn't present herself as the heroine, but she presents God as the hero of the story. It's interesting. You see in verse 17 that Eli responds, telling her to go in peace and may the God of Israel grant the request you've made of him. I'm not sure what to make of, of, of that, uh, understanding who Eli was and what his perspective on life was. Uh, maybe he's just trying to get rid of her. Maybe God just really spoke to him in that moment the guy, that he was going to answer Hannah's prayer. Hannah in humility refers to herself as your servant. May, may your servant find favor with you. And then I, I, I find this so interesting and inspiring. Hannah goes her way. But she doesn't just go back the way she came. She's changed. She's changed. She's not changed by what happened with Eli, though. I think she's changed by that moment of surrender with the Lord. Look at this. She ate and no longer look despondent. Hannah returns to life, but she returns different because Hannah believed not only that God had heard her, but that God would answer her prayer. And I don't necessarily think that Hannah was convinced that God was going to answer it yes, that God was going to grant what she asked. God gave no indication to Hannah at that point, at least not according to the text. She was not assured of a positive response to her prayer. And yet Hannah goes away in faith, believing that God would do whatever was best for her. I, that, that's what I see in this interaction between her and the Lord, her coming to this place of submission to the Lord. I'm just saying, you know, God, I'm ready. I'm willing to lay down before you this thing that I want more than anything. God, I give, I give a son to you. If you grant me a son, this thing I want more than anything else, rather than having this son myself, presenting a son to my husband, Elkanah, solving all these issues that I've lived under all these years, rather than that, God, you give me a son, I'm going to place him in your hands. I'm going to surrender him to you. I see this heart of submission. And I think that's really what, what changes Hannah. She doesn't go away knowing that she'd won the lotto, that she'd gotten that thing that she was after, but she goes away knowing my life resides within God's care. I'm in his hands, and what he chooses for me will be best. You know, what we see played out here in this historical account in the Old Testament, I think we could sum it up in just one verse from the New Testament. Just one thing that Jesus said there in John 15, 7. There Jesus makes this statement. He says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, 
Ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. Too often we carelessly read passages like that and we think that it's just God giving us a blank check and just telling us, hey, listen, whatever carnal thing you may want today, just ask it and it will be yours. But that isn't what it says, is it? I mean, you look at this, there is an if there. If you remain in me, think about that. Jesus is saying, if you remain in me, if you live your life within me, if you allow yourself to be absolutely consumed by me, and if my words remain in you, if you allow what I am speaking into your life to live there and to shape you and to form you, then ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. I think what the Lord is saying here is that when we come to that place of surrender, that we will want what he wants for us. Yeah, I think, I think what we see happen in Hannah's life is, is really the living out of what, what we see stated so starkly here by Jesus. The really, the, the, we come to the place of contentment not by getting what we want. Because you and I know how this works. You know this cycle. The moment you get what you want, you want something else, right? I mean, that is the magic of Amazon.com. <laughs> you order one thing, and even before it arrives, what are you doing? You're ordering something else. Because overnight delivery, right? You know, contentment isn't found in, in, in getting all these things that we think that we want. Contentment is found in coming to this place of, of trust and submission to the Lord. Learning to trust him with even the deepest of our desires, the greatest of our longings. And friends, he has proven himself. He has proven himself trustworthy, hasn't he? Hasn't the Lord shown us that we can trust him? Doesn't the cross declare his trustworthiness to us? The fact that God put on human flesh that he lived without sin, lived perfection, and yet he was willing to take the punishment for my sin, to take my sin upon himself in my place so that I might, so that I might be forgiven and cleansed, so that I might live what he created me for to be in relationship with him for all eternity. The Apostle Paul condenses the gospel so tightly when he says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That should blow your mind. If you understand what, what, what Paul is saying there, that should level you. That he who knew no sin, 
He didn't just take my sin. He became sin. Why? So that I might be the righteousness of God. So that I might be in relationship with God who is holy and perfect. That I might experience that thing that this whole story of life is about. That I might enjoy relationship with God for all eternity. We're going to have time this morning. I'm going to invite the worship team to return. And in a moment, we are going to share in the Lord's table together. And you are going to have opportunity to remember and to be reminded of the trustworthiness of God. Maybe some of you, you're here this morning and you have never put your faith in Christ. You have never come to that place of surrender to the Lord. You have never trusted God with your life, with your living, and with your eternity. Today's a real good day for that. Why not put your trust in him today? Simply speak to him in prayer. Confess your sin. Receive his forgiveness. Submit yourself to him. Receive cleansing from guilt and new life beyond your understanding, beyond your expectations. If you belong to Christ, whether you have just now made that transaction or if you have walked with him for, for years, then this table, this reminder is for you. And I invite you as we worship to come to the table Take one of the pairs of cups. In the bottom cup, you'll find a little nugget of bread. In the top cup, a, a taste of the juice. And they are reminders. They're reminders that Jesus gave us. In the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples and he gave them bread. And he said, take and eat this. This is my body given for you. And I don't think they understood what he was talking about at that point. But he became their sacrifice. He literally, physically gave his body on the cross in their place to pay for their sin and ours too. After dinner, he took the cup and gave it to him and said, take this. This is the promise of my blood. My blood poured out for you. His life expended for you for the cleansing of your sin. So as we worship, you can remember the reality, the effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice for you, that he has purchased you for eternity, that you are forgiven and you are cleansed and you are welcomed into fellowship with the Father. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would remind us of your faithfulness. That we would remember what it was that you did for us. The completeness of your sacrifice, the cost, the reality, the effectiveness. And God, that we would, we would comprehend that. 
to the point that we would be willing to trust you with our deepest desires, our greatest longings, that we would come to that place of full and complete submission to you, trusting you with our lives and knowing that you will do what is best. Work that in us, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.